there's a lot of misinformation that's developed for these extremely cynical reasons. I mean, part of why we're here is to talk about climate change. And here we see industries spending massive amounts of money so that they can make more money and doing it purposely to confuse people Mm -hmm. uh, and doing it in a way where they know they're going to kill people and potentially wreck the earth. Welcome to I'm Fucking the Future, the show where we learn about the surprising and innovative ways that scientists, entrepreneurs, activists, and even philosophers are fighting the climate crisis. I'm your host, Chris Turney, and I believe that together we can unfuck this mess. Let's get started. We're unfucking the future. Okay, you've been here a while. You've heard about the bad. A mass evacuation this morning along Australia's southeastern coast, with bushfires looming and extreme danger ahead. A fierce heat wave is gripping parts of Europe with temperatures reaching more than 40 degrees Celsius. After 24 hours, all that remains are flooded homes and floating debris. On Sunday and Monday, Mediterranean storm Daniel swept through eastern Libya, washing away entire neighborhoods. But let's pause for a moment and consider an amazing possible future. It's 2050, and I'm Chris Turney, a retired climate scientist. Almost everything around me has been electrified. Our homes, our work, our cars. People no longer live in those harmful little suburbs. We live in small communities where we know our neighbours, and it's just a short walk to the grocery store. And if we do need to go further... We can just use the clean, affordable public transportation that's widely available across the world. Fossil fuel companies are a thing of the past, and the people who are working in coal and oil now work in green jobs. At school, kids learn about smog and wildfires, but not because they need to learn how to survive them. They're learning about these events in their history classes. Natural disasters because of climate change have largely stopped, or at least become less frequent and less extreme. And the world just feels pretty damn good. While this might sound like a total fantasy, it's totally within our reach. We're going to have to work really fucking hard to achieve this vision. But one of the most pressing challenges is that the world is full of bad actors pushing bad information in bad faith. Misinformation casts doubt on the urgency of a climate crisis and it distracts us from a real issue. We need to take immediate action at speed and scale. It's easy to find examples of how mis- and disinformation is influencing the climate crisis, like the idea that walkable 15-minute cities is some sort of plot for totalitarian control, Or that the wildfires in Maui last year were started by energy weapons or space lasers? Or that shifts in the Earth's magnetic field, and not human activity, is responsible for the climate crisis? That one was promoted by Joe Rogan and got millions of views on TikTok. All of this is easily disprovable, of course, by any of the world's thousands of climate scientists who look at the actual facts and data and models all day long. But too many people are believing these things, and that's all of our problem. 
Today, we're going to talk about how and why misinformation came for the climate crisis and what we can do about it. Our guest is Kaylin O'Connor. She's a professor of philosophy at University of California, Irvine, where, among other things, she researches misinformation and how false beliefs spread between people. And Kaylin's not like other philosophers. She's a cool philosopher. On her website, she's got this beautiful photo of herself, her kids, and a chicken. It's not the kind of headshot you see most academics post. They're normally quite formal and a bit intimidating. I'm in a discipline which is like very male, very white. Philosophy, even though it's in the humanities, has been like the humanities discipline where it hasn't diversified as much as other ones. So as a, you know, as a woman, as a full professor, I sort of like to open the doors a little bit and be like, I'm a real person to younger women who want to join the field. Like you can be a real person too. So in this picture, I have my three kids and I bring them along to conferences sometimes and they show up on (laughs) Zoom with me and I tell everyone who will listen about my chickens. Yeah, those chickens are a pretty big part of her life. I am zoned to have up to three chickens and I have seven chickens (laughs) and (laughs) I recently had to build them a new enclosure because my neighbor was like enough (laughs) with the damn chickens. They're all different breeds. They're very beautiful. They are named Starfrost and Red Velvet and Molasses and Cream Puff and Oreo, mostly after desserts. That's awesome. So are you, are you, you must be drowning in eggs, aren't you? <laughs> or do you give them out to you? Maybe appease your neighbor. Do you give them out to you? Yeah, I just, I just give them to neighbors if we have too many. And like my neighbors and I, we have, you know, like someone brings over the extra lemons, nice. someone brings over the extra ginger cake, someone brings over the extra eggs. It's like a very nice little... That sounds lovely. That sounds lovely. In that star's hollow-esque setting, it could be easy to forget the existential crisis we're facing. But Kaylin says she's rarely not thinking about the environment. Part of that is due to her upbringing. My dad was an environmentalist. I used to read Ranger Rick magazine. And my grandfather wrote an article, I think in the 70s, about the threats of human emission and the possible... Uh, emergence of climate change as a result. So yeah, I've been worried about climate change literally since I was five or six years old. <laughs> so wow, it's, really? That's sometimes depressing to be like, now I'm 40 and I'm even more worried about it than before. The 2016 US presidential debates made Kaylin feel particularly concerned about our future. I mean, I still remember in one of the Trump-Clinton debates, Hillary Clinton saying something like, the Russian government is making these claims about me and kind of jumping back. I was like, the Russian government, what are we talking about? You know, I, at that point, I at least was just not aware of the way that big forces were starting to use social media to um, try to control or shape political events and outcomes. My collaborator, James Weatherall and I both started thinking like, oh, this, this is really going to matter. This is going to be important. Um, but one thing that's kind of funny is that we, we even writing this book on misinformation, so we wrote this book, The Misinformation Age, starting then, we really underestimated how serious of an issue it would be and how long-term. So we thought, we have to write this book really fast. The book, The Misinformation Age, How False Beliefs Spread, is an impressive and stellar contribution to the field. It's totally digestible for the general public, 
and it digs into how people understand what is truthful and what is not, and ultimately how misinformation has become such a huge issue in our digital world. So getting into your work, you call yourself a philosopher of science. Now, the word philosopher to me makes me think of Confucius or Aristotle and and people whose fields of study definitely do not overlap with mine at all. So what does it mean to be a philosopher of science? Well, first of all, I'll just point out all the scientists used to be philosophers. I mean, Aristotle wrote on all sorts of things, biology and physics and astronomy, you know, everything. And then the sciences kind of peeled away and philosophy was what was left. But philosophy of science is an old discipline. And there are a lot of things philosophers of science do. So one thing is work on understanding how science as an enterprise works, you know, how does scientific progress work. For thousands of years, philosophers have asked questions about the way we live and why, about how we work together and why societies work the way they do. One thing that's a very traditional question in philosophy is how does knowledge work? How do we come to know anything? And also, what does it mean to have a belief in something that's justified? One thing that a lot of philosophers work on now is what's called social epistemology. That's the study of how people understand knowledge, how they understand what is true, and how we search for truth. So Descartes was focused on these really, these questions about individual knowledge. Like how can I, as this one little isolated unit, have confidence that the things I believe are true? But increasingly people came to understand that that's not really how human knowledge works. So other people tell us things, we choose to trust them, we uptake those things as beliefs, we do some other things, we reason about like, is this consistent with the other things I believe? Should I trust this person and for what reason, or should I not? Our knowledge, in fact, is just very, very deeply social. So one thing a lot of philosophers study is social epistemology. That relates to philosophy of science because a lot of things in philosophy of science are work on how groups of scientists come to know or believe things. So how does a group of humans who are interested in climate change come to believe the climate is warming and at these rates and as the result of these causes. Um, so those are, those are things that philosophers work on. So with fake news then, it's that element of actually you've got a belief that's not true that is being presented effectively as a, as a truth. Um, So first of all, I don't necessarily love to use the term fake news because as a lot of people have pointed out, fake news was this term that was like very much applied to this specific phenomena happening in 2016, 2017, 2018, when people would make fake news sites and fake news articles. And then the term got co-opted by the right to describe a lot of true things as fake when they weren't. They are the enemy of the people. And we could have a country that would be able to heal and get together, except the media foments it. They're so corrupt. And, you know, I call it, I came up with the term fake news a long time ago. I don't know if I'll get credit for that, but that's okay. As Kaylin said, fake news has taken on a new meaning. For a lot of people, it just means anything I don't like. So I often will use misinformation or misleading content. Uh, So that's why I'm like switching language a little bit. Um, So there are a lot of ways that people 
spread misinformation or misleading content and a lot of reasons why people like uptake it. The most basic just has to do with this fact that we're social learners where we necessarily have to trust each other in order to learn most things we know about the world, which means that people tell us things, you know, most of the time it's in our best interest to believe those things. And sometimes it's not. Sometimes those things are wrong, but we just don't have the ability to always differentiate between the stuff we're getting from other people that's true and that's false. And so Mm. social knowledge is tremendously powerful. But once you open up that channel, this door for social information to come through, you're going to open up a channel for misinformation, for fake news to come through too. That's a really powerful analogy. I really like that, Kaylin. So I have to ask, I mean, I, I, I'm very aware that I have done this. Have you ever fallen for any news articles that are, are basically misinformed? Oh, a hundred times. Yeah. yeah. I, I, think, I think people would find that reassuring, even yeah. the experts too. <laughs> I mean, it was stressful to write a book about misinformation because I guarantee somewhere in that book, we say something false, probably multiple things false, even though we did the best research we could. But yeah, I'm, I'm a human and like all other humans, I often fall for misinformation. Um, one of my favorite little examples is I was doing an interview on misinformation and someone brought up an example of like a propagated false belief, which is that uh, daddy long legs, these spiders in the US are the most poisonous spiders in the world, but their mouths are too small to bite you. And as he was saying it, I was like, yep, I believed that one. until <laughs> <laughs> I've not heard that one, actually. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> it's a cracking <laughs> story. <laughs> yeah, as soon as he said it, I was like, oh, yeah, that that's very dumb. Of course, that's <laughs> false. But no, I, I had believed it until then. <laughs> I've done it, too. A few years ago, there was this news article about a polar bear who'd become stranded on a Scottish island after the melting Arctic ice had separated the poor animal from its home. And I remember reading this piece and going, oh, that's amazing. But of course, this was just an April Fool's prank by the newspaper. Even I, as someone who studies the climate and melting ice, fell for it. Now, that kind of misinformation is fairly harmless, both to us and to the daddy long legs and polar bears not in Scotland. But other misinformation is developed by bad actors to influence politics, the economy and the very social fabric of our communities. We're on fucking the future. We're on fucking the future. One of the most interesting or perhaps most terrifying things about the mis- and disinformation landscape today is how oil and gas are using environmental and nature activists to spew falsehoods. There's been a lot of stuff spread by oil and gas about how windmills kill birds Hmm. and how windmills harm whales. So here are people trying to glom on to people's environmental impulses, their desires to help other animals protect the environment. But what they're actually trying to do is to stop action on climate change. Really pressing those emotional buttons, eh? Now, I wonder if you could help clarify for me and and the listeners as well, what is the difference between misinformation and disinformation? 
So the way people typically pull those apart is to say that disinformation is false and it's intended to mislead. It's misleading and someone's trying to mislead you, whereas misinformation is misleading, but there's no intention to, to lead you astray. Ah, so, uh, so, so some of the times when we're talking about these climate issues which are being deliberately misleading are actually effectively disinformation. Is that right? Yes, though I think that when we talk about information on social media, it's not like this is a bad way to differentiate things, but it ends up not, I think, always capturing what's happening on social media because a lot of what you see is disinformation created by cynical parties that then becomes misinformation. Oh, so they, they are actually sharing it, not with the intent to mislead. They think it's truth. Exactly. So most of the huh. people spreading for example, save the whales are not going to be people who are trying to mislead anyone or not going to be people who want a bad outcome yes. for environmentalism. Huh. So in that it sort of transforms into misinformation and it's designed to transform into misinformation. In Kaylin's book, The Age of Misinformation, she and her co-author James Owen Revel write about Roger Revelle, a climate scientist who was one of the first people to study global heating. He was a major influence on Al Gore, who, of course, has been a climate activist as a politician. He did a lot of work showing that carbon dioxide was increasing in the atmosphere as a result of fossil fuels. So he really spent his career showing that the climate was changing and, in fact, raising alarms about global warming. By the time Jim Hansen gave his testimony in front of Congress in 1988... Ravel was already 79, and as he aged, he became very sick. Now, during his time, a man named Fred Singer came along. Fred took money from oil and gas. He was basically paid to sow skepticism and doubt about climate change. Fred Singer has a long resume. To name some of his greatest hits, in the 1980s, he helped promote confusion about the causes of acid rain, the health effects of smoking, and the ozone hole depletion. And in 1991, Fred took some of his previous writing, repurposed it into an article, and added Ravel's name as a co-author. Now all of this happened at a time when Ravel was gravely ill. The paper was sceptical about climate change. So you've got this subject matter expert, now in old age, claiming that maybe the science behind global heating isn't as solid as he'd previously claimed? Maybe it shouldn't be believed. Maybe there's nothing to be concerned about here. And so Ravel's reputation as a climate scientist was weaponized for climate skepticism. But people who knew Ravel, including his research assistant who'd been working with him for 12 years at this point, said Ravel had been hoodwinked into attaching his name to the paper. A lot of people cast doubts about whether Ravel was really able to consent properly to being an author on this paper. And the paper had serious repercussions on the public debate around climate change. For example, the then Senator Al Gore had been talking about the greenhouse effect and climate change for many years. But now the top scientist on climate change was apparently doubting his own work. It cast doubt on the whole thing. 
this was made to use to make Al Gore look foolish. You know, the person who you told us um, had showed all these things about how the climate is warming. Even he doesn't actually think it's warming. This is something we've seen happen again and again in the climate skepticism movement is that, um, you know, oil and gas, the people sort of working to fight understanding on climate change, they get real scientists to take up climate skeptic positions. However, these scientists are very rarely like climate scientists. In fact, it's almost always physicists. I don't know what is wrong with physics <laughs> that they're producing these people who are willing to do this. But so they'll get these very prominent physicists to sort of be the face of climate skepticism. And because these are actual scientific experts and people usually trust scientific experts, their skepticism ends up looking very powerful. Mm. Fred Singer was repeatedly interviewed about the paper and the huge change in Ravel's view on global heating. In the interviews, he just outright lies about the situation. And he joins us live from Washington, D.C., Dr. Singer. What was Roger Ravel's view of carbon dioxide as a greenhouse gas when you co-authored that Cosmos article back in 1990? Uh, he was very relaxed about it. He basically uh, looked at this as a grand geophysical experiment. And this, of course, wasn't the first time something like this happened. The Roger Ravel case is just one of many alarming examples of how the big oil lobby uses real scientific experts to amplify their quack science. I mean, there have there have been others. So, I mean, this was a, a strategy that was really engineered by big tobacco uh, in the 50s and 60s. Mm. But, for example, they created a group called the Tobacco Industry Research Committee that was supposedly going to research whether tobacco was harmful. It was, in fact, a propaganda body, but it was headed by um, a molecular biologist who did, like, genetics. And so he, again, was a scientific expert. He, of course, was in no way, like, a health expert or a doctor or a medical researcher, but he lent this sort of weight of expertise to this group. So when we think about misinformation, we think about, I don't know, Russian state television, But one of the things you write about is actually way, way scarier. And it's that idea that these days, the propagandists are our family and friends. And that's because of social media. I wonder if you could take us way back to 2016 and explain how social media really changed the state of misinformation. Yeah, so social media, we can think of it broadly as having changed the way information can flow between people. It's kind of special in that it changes very quickly and there's always new platforms and the way information is flowing is always changing. First it's sound bites and then it's pictures and then it's uh, words and then it's words and pictures and then it's videos. And so the change is so fast that it's sort of hard to respond and regulate. Here's a few of the things that really matter about social media and why misinformation can spread so well on there. So one thing is that People can get big platforms even when they don't really deserve big platforms. Another thing is that it's hard to know the source of information. So if you're thinking about like person-to-person social exchange of information, you're looking at another person in the face, you can see who they are, you know where they live, you know how you met them, you probably know other people they're connected to. You have a lot of information about who they are. Once you get onto social media, you're looking at profiles where 
there may or may not even be a real person corresponding to that profile. That mm. profile could be a bot, it could be a Russian agent, it could be another political agent, it could be someone's secret burner account where they're trying to do something. Um, and so you have less ability to judge your social sources as trustworthy or not trustworthy. Mm. In addition, we see propagandists able to take advantage of various aspects of social media to sort of um, tweak our social feelings of trust in ways that are much harder to do person to person. So for example, they can get a bunch of bots to like a piece of misinformation. And then that looks to us like, this is very popular. A lot of people like it. A lot of people trust it. That's a cue to us that it is trustworthy mm. or it is something that we brought to engage in or that we could share. And so there are ways for wow. our, you know, our normal knowledge forming mechanisms to get hacked. And Kaylin says that right now, a lot of people don't trust the institutions that we've historically gained knowledge from, like traditional media and subject matter experts. A lot of people argue that for the most part, people are trusting of experts still, including of scientists. And yet we do see uh, this kind of phenomenon of people describing the New York Times as fake news. A lot of what is driving that, I think, is cynical actors who are trying to erode public trust in science. And especially, um, you see this in the U.S. among right-wing politicians and especially populist-type politicians. Uh, because, of course, populism is associated with this kind of rejection of authority or expertise. Um, but there's often a reason people are doing it, which is that if you can get people not to trust the real scientists, not to trust the real journalists, not to trust these good sources of information, then they're easier to control. Just backing up, we've got bad actors who are trying to influence public opinion so that those people don't, say, start protesting in the streets about the government's inaction on the climate crisis. And these bad actors are putting a shit ton of money into advertising and propaganda campaigns. But they're also influencing our politics through lobbying and funding the campaigns of politicians who side with their bogus narrative. This might seem pretty bleak, but there is a solution. Thing number one, <laughs> campaign finance reform. Yeah, That's a depressing topic because the, the people who are financed are the ones who have to implement campaign finance reform. Um, but without it, it's pretty hard to see how we'll get effective climate action because there are just so many politicians who are funded by oil, gas, coal, these massively wealthy uh, corporations that um, can afford to give a lot of money to politicians. Another thing has to do with, you know, regulation of online content. So free speech we don't want to impinge on free speech. We do want it to be the case that all of us can be in informational environments that allow us to form good beliefs, that give mm. us the freedom to think effectively about what's happening around us, to learn about the world, that give us the freedom to make good choices for our own lives and protect our own interests. So, you know, there are ways in which 
we can think about us as having rights to be in good informational environments, as well as other people having rights to share bad information. One thing a lot of philosophers have talked about is the difference between um, stopping speech and deplatforming. So we don't think of people as having a right to have any platform for their false beliefs or bad ideas. Like nobody is entitled to come to a university and give talks on their flat earth theories. And in the same way, people aren't entitled to have the algorithm on Instagram promote their content for them to a lot of people. That's not an entitlement. So we can have regulations where people can say what they want, but where we don't have to platform ah, or spread yes. what they're saying. And, you know, it's, it's not as if people have an entitlement to even be on social media platforms. That's up to social media platforms. And if, you know, they were to take that more seriously, I would think a good model is something like when you get onto a platform like this, you sign a user agreement or a contract that says, if I promote too much misleading or harmful content, then the platform can mm. kick me off because the platform has a standard for the kind of content yeah. you can share. Of course, that gets into very difficult questions about who's going to decide what kind of content is misleading and harmful. And that is legitimately tricky. But mm. sort of in the extremes, there's a lot of content that we can, you know, it's just not controversial that it's misleading, that it's interfering with people's ability to function and make decisions. And that's the kind of stuff that could be a gimme to say if people are sharing too much of that, then they don't get platformed on this. I think the sort of most promising model for how to regulate speech online is to have something analogous like to the EPA mm. or the FDA, a regulatory agency where we're not thinking about mm. like passing laws in Congress that say this is what you can do on Instagram, but rather we have a set of guidelines that social media platforms have to comply to. And then these regulatory agencies can work flexibly with those media companies to comply with those guidelines. Okay, that's big bananas. Maybe not up your alley, but there are a ton of ways we can protect ourselves from mis- and disinformation. We're unfucking the future. We're unfucking the future. If you're like me, you might feel totally equipped to recognize mis- and disinformation. And yet, most of us have fallen for it. I definitely have. So what can we actually do here? What the fuck can I do? I'm joined again by the brilliant Maggie Baird. Maggie, how's it going? Hey, Chris, I'm doing really well. But honestly, some of the stuff you and Kim just talked about, it's pretty fucking depressing. I mean, even those of us who think of ourselves as savvy can be easily duped by misinformation because the people who put that shit out do a really good job of it. And some of it is disinformation. They really are trying to make us believe something that's not true. I don't know about you, but I think of times when I've been fooled by like a visual image mm. and I believe it because I see it with my own eyes and then I realize it was manipulated. Well, that's the same thing that happens with facts. 
Totally, me too. I mean, Kaylin had one tip I wanted to share about how we can steer clear of misinformation. I mean, she says one of the easiest ways to spot misinformation related to climate change is to look out for news or articles where climate disasters are being blamed on something other than the climate crisis. When you see these kind of social consequences of climate change, like, for example, conflicts related to climate crises or refugees, um, lines that are casting doubt about the real causes, like, oh, this would have happened even without rising heat, or it wasn't actually the climate that caused this. Um, Lines about climate being a conspiracy. And then I talked about these kinds of distracting claims where they're talking about harms from climate mitigation or green energy, and those harms might be real, but they're distracting from the much, much more serious harms of continuing to use fossil fuels. Oh, I think that is such a good point. Misinformation isn't just incorrect information. It's also information that doesn't include the full picture. Maybe it's facts cherry-picked from a larger study that paint a picture that is very misleading. Mm. So if you're wondering if what you are reading is misinformation or disinformation, here are some red flags to look out for. First of all, I am very skeptical of emotional reactions. Content that uses really emotional or charged language, it just should be double-checked. You just want to make sure all the facts are straight before retweeting or sharing it. It's so tempting because you're like, oh my gosh, that's shocking. I'm going to share it. And then you know, Mm. just take a breath, (laughs) check it out. And when something sounds too good or too bad or, or maybe too shocking to be true, well, it just might not be true. Also, always make sure you check the source of the information. Who funded the study that is being cited? Is it a reputable academic resource or a corporation that stands to gain financially. And if it's the latter, maybe take that information with a grain of salt. Oh, that last one is good. Always check out the source of the information and that you're conveying the full picture. And that's what the fuck you can do. What the fuck can I do? That's all for this episode. Next time on Unfucking the Future, Bill Nye the Science Guy. A question I have for conservative me is, why are you doing this? Mm. Why are you ignoring the facts? What is it? And to say, well, they're doing it for the money. What money? We're all going to die if you keep (laughs) this up. I think you're really going to enjoy it. Until then, I'm Chris Turney signing off from Sydney, Australia. Thanks for joining me in Unfucking the Future. We're on fucking the future. Unfucking the Future is produced by Imagine Audio and Awfully Nice for iHeart Podcasts and hosted by me, Chris Turney. The show is written by Meredith Bryan. Unfucking the Future is produced by Amber von Schassen and Rene Colvert. Ron Howard, Brian Grazer, Kara Welker and Nathan Clokey are the executive producers from Imagine Audio. Jesse Burton and Katie Hodges are the executive producers from Awfully Nice. Sound design and mixing by Evan Arnett. Original music by Lily Hayden and producing services by Peter McGuigan. 
Sam Swinnerton wrote our theme and all those fun jingles. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate and review Unfucking the Future on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.